Some of the content you're about to hear involves discussions about suicide, mental health and trauma. It's really very honest, but incredibly inspiring. Do take care when you're listening. Near-death experiences aren't always uninvited. For many, mental wellness from physical and or psychological trauma contributes to a deterioration in quality of life. We are reduced to an existence and little else. Whether it's from a lifelong self-doubt or a trigger based on abuse or abandonment, depression can push any of us closer to suicide, any gender, at any age. And I know this firsthand. Any hope of happiness in my late teens had been destroyed by, well, let's say, a turbulent home life and then years of sexual abuse by a sports coach and long before their eventual criminal conviction offered a quantum of closure. I approached adulthood devoured by depression and the very real inner belief that I'd be better off dead. And as we've heard in earlier episodes, desperation and despair can be an ingredient in the build-up to an NDE. And it isn't a constant at all. Rich, poor, black, white, male, female, non-binary, blonde, brunette, bald, fat, thin. It's impossible to categorize NDEs too precisely. And that's exactly as it should be. I mean, we all die regardless of our DNA. This is Died and Survived, and I'm Charlie Webster. Self-infliction and reflection. But then if I die, I won't have to suffer anymore. I'll be free of the constant numbness that follows me, the ever-present gut-wrenching sense of being a failure. I won't have to pretend anymore. In this episode, we meet those who have sought to end their lives prematurely, yet experience a near-death experience and hear a fascinating variety of impacts upon the version of themselves that survived their attempts to end life. Chris typifies this possibly more than anyone. Passed amongst relatives after his mother abandoned him as a preschooler, he tells us about the character traits he developed before his own near-death experience in his 20s. I'd love to hear about what led up to that moment in your life. Depression and low self-esteem. That's what led me there. Um, I've known since I was five years old, my grandma told me that when I was six months, my mom threw me in a dumpster. So I think maybe subconsciously when I was that young, I think maybe it was from that experience on, I already felt abandoned. Like I already had like abandonment issues. So I remember even being in preschool, like in the fourth grade, I really, not fourth grade, when I was four years old, I literally learned like after school one day, I'm sitting in a room by myself and I'm like, how come I don't have anybody in this house that I grew up in? I'm like, how come I don't have anybody here to like, look up to like I don't think anybody really loves me so like I guess I'll just raise myself and that's when I decided then I'm just gonna learn life by myself I mean it's not surprised that you had you know you were abandoned so you're going to feel those things when you were a child and also like I don't know whether you know but even there's so much research about even feeling that before you were even born in in the womb the mother yeah so I think to me that's just completely understandable that you would feel like that 
So when did you find, so you found out when you were five. five years old? But I was just confused about it because it's like here I was perfectly healthy. So my mom took care of me, obviously, like all nine months when she was pregnant. Like, so there's something she must have been doing right yeah. that I came out like healthy and stuff like. And she, I was told by my grandma, she would read to me every day. She would go to the library and read, she ate fruit. She was like so excited about having a baby. But then I don't know what happened between the day I was born and six months to what, I don't know what happened. It could have been what I think is maybe that, uh, what is it like post yeah, trauma? Yeah, depression, yeah. Yeah, it could have been that. that Depression, I think it's called as well. Yeah, maybe not being able to cope. Did you feel like it was, I can imagine as a child, did you feel like it was you? For sure, especially when I was five and she came to visit and she told me, I should be grateful that I'm here. She should have. She could have killed me. She could have, you know, boarded me. But thanks to her, I'm here, and I need to be grateful. So who brought you up then? Who like who raised me? Mm. I grew up. I started with my grandma. She had a nervous breakdown because when my when my mom threw me in the dumpster, the neighbor found me. She gave me to, well, the courts gave her to, gave me to my grandma. So after that, she had a nervous breakdown. She was in the hospital for a year. Went to a couple other places, and then I found my way to the sisters that my mom would always say was the most mean to her. Those are the ones, that's the sister I lived with, her, her husband and their kids. It was another check in the house. So, you know, like, why not? So I was kind of like, they had their own kids, and I was just the more outside kid. So I was with them up until 13 or so and that's when I went to another aunt and then another aunt. Was there any positive role models in your life at that time? Yes, uh, the aunt I used to see on the weekends, um, I only went to her house because of my because of her husband which was my uncle. Not blood related but he treated me like I was his son. What's your uncle? My uncle Rabbit. Uncle Rabbit. He was the most, he loved me more than all my real family did. And for some reason, they would sort of down talk him a lot for that. I don't know why. Let's kill myself. Let's get out of here. That eight was our. An oh, I was already on the road. Like when I was eight years old, I and I don't know how I really even thought of the idea to just grab a knife. But I was at my uncle Rabbit's house. He was taking a nap, and then I had just told myself, "I got to get out of here." So I got a knife, went in the bathroom and cut myself for the first time and that's when I was like this didn't work like maybe I'll try it again or try something else but I need to get out of here I'm not needed here mm -hmm. he didn't know that but I never wanted to tell him because I knew he actually did love me but that's the only person that I knew loved me mm -hmm. that showed me love what did your teenage life look like he died during that time. Oh, so okay. right when I hit my teen oh. age year, like right at 13, he was gone. And like right when I could have used him the most. That must have been so hard, especially like being brought, being raised in a lot of rejection. And then the one person that, that you did feel some kind of value and care and worth from then passed away at such a pivotal time. So I was kind of, sort of alone since 11 to 13 already, because he was sick. So I was just trying to make sure he was okay. 
I remember the last thing he said to me was, you're gonna be in high school soon. And he says, you're getting some peach fuzz on your face. And then he's like, he's like, I'm proud of you. Then he just grabs my hand for the longest time and then says, take care of yourself. And that's the last words I ever heard him say. What impact did it have on you and your life after that? The impact it had was like me more learning life instead of learning how to live my adolescent years. I was already like in my adolescent years thinking about my adult years. I was already like, I gotta raise, I gotta learn how to become an adult, like how to have certain morals and certain things. And whenever I would get confused, I would think about my Uncle Rabbit. Like, what would he do in this situation? Mm. And occasionally to this day, I still do think about that too. Like, what would he do in this situation? It's nice to hear that out of all the chaos, you did have that one, mm -hmm. that one person. That's what makes me, I think, smile so much a lot because he did. He was always smiling. So I think like I try to be like him. The transparent surroundings disappear. She's holding me. We're in a bedroom. He is screaming with rage. I can smell the bitter alcohol still in the air from his breath. I'm not late. I came back at the time Mama told me to. I'm wearing that short black dress made out of cheap synthetic material. I'd saved up all my money to buy it for the holiday. My stomach is hurting so bad, I'm crouched over the dresses riding up the top of my thighs. You stupid bitch! Look at the two of you! Pathetic! Mummy saving you! Spit is coming out of his mouth. It's frothing, snot is dripping from his nose. His eyebrows are raised, yet pushed down into a frown that makes lumps rise out of his forehead. We've seen this expression so many times before. I'm screaming, I'm crying. My brother is cowering in a corner. He's sobbing. He is six. All I want to do is reach out to him and hold him in my arms. My friend is backed up against one of the twin beds, silently crying, her mouth wide open, and her bewildered eyes fixate on him. She's heard me talk about him and knows what he can be like, but has never seen it with her own eyes. We'd had the best night. We sang karaoke all night in our matching black tight dresses. So had he. Everybody wants to rule the world is his favorite. He thinks he's the best singer in the world. He told me I'm nowhere near as good as him. I don't care though, I love karaoke. The guys who we'd met earlier in the holiday joined us. I really fancy one of them. He's tall and blonde and a few years older than me. He has an earring and he's from somewhere down the south of England. I like his accent. We've been hanging out as much as we could. I had the biggest smile on my face as me and my friend walked in the bedroom. We were giggling and playfully teasing each other. My brother was fast asleep. My mom and him were in the room next door. I stepped through the door and heard a slurring of words behind me. I couldn't make them out and then they turned into shouting. I twisted around quickly and in a whirlwind of hot rancid breath on my face, like a ball to a red rag, I was down. A perfect hit on target, straight to the stomach, knocking me to the floor backward. I gasped for breath. Stop! I can hear my mum screaming in the background. He's grabbing my shoulders, half of his weight, squashing me to the floor. 
The sour smell of old beer forms thick clouds around me. Sick builds in the back of my throat. Get off her! I can't breathe! Mom! Another guy suddenly appears, and it takes him to drag him off me. So then what led to your near-death experience? The fact that I felt like if God wanted me in the situations that I was in, to have all that pain I was feeling, to go through all the stuff I was going through, I'm like, if God is like this, then I'm gonna just like distance myself from God too. And whatever happens, happens. And that's when you go in, you're in, you're in a depressive state, you go numb. And this numbness gets more numb. And then it kind of goes from numb to careless. So I was already there at careless. I'm like, forget it. Whatever happens, happens. I'm out of here. Yeah. yeah. You that's when your self-worth, I think, is just so low. Got bored of drinking so much. So then I went on to pills. That didn't work. So I was like, all right, I got bored of that after like a few weeks, about a month or so of that, I was done, got bored. I'm like, I need something else because don't want to drink. I don't want to take pills. I don't want to do any of this stuff. What can I do? I'm bored now. Do I go work? Then my self-esteem was so low that if I went to work, I wouldn't even end up going because I wouldn't be motivated. So here I am, nothing, you know, so I figured, why don't I just leave? Because at this point I was tired of searching for the truth. So in my mind already, I'm like, okay, I'm just out of here now. Now let's start planning. And that's when I start planning. So I thought of many different ways I can end this, but I had ended up coming up to a decision to go to the train station. And I stayed there all day and stayed there for a long time and decided the exact time I'm gonna be at this track. And I'm gonna lay down and the train's gonna come and I'm out of here. That was the plan. And that didn't happen? It didn't happen. My plan got deterred, you could say, because I was at one of my friend's house and we were just arguing and stuff like that. I ended up leaving. And that's the only person that actually did tell about some of my pain, you know, because they were going through their own, so we related. So I kind of told them I had a plan to leave, you know? And I, I just remember during this argument, I left, I'm walking down the street, hit the corner, and then I just hear this honking, get in the car, which is them. So, yes, so I'm like, ah. Oh. Damn, I'm like, my plan is ruined. Now I gotta come up with something else now. Cause I was on my way to that train track. And as soon as I got in the car, I got, and it's funny, the main thing that always does get me is when my mom called me at that exact moment when I was in the car with my friend. Haven't talked to her in years, haven't seen her way longer. Last conversation we had on the phone, I was 19 and she told me, she's told me, don't claim me as your mom, I'm not your mom. So that's the last thing I remember from her. And how old were you now at this point when you were, your friend was honking? This point. Your mom calls and you're getting in the car. 24, I was 24. 
And um, so she calls me and I said, well, obviously the first thing I'm gonna wanna know is how did you get my number? So I'm like, wait, how did you get my number? And she tells me, your grandma, which is her mom, they would talk sometimes. <clears throat> and she told her, um, I wanted to get your number because she's like, your mom, she's like, um, you've been asking my mom about me, which is my grandma. I said, oh yeah, I have. I asked her if you talked to her. She said, yeah, just stop asking about me. She said, I'm telling you now, I don't want you, don't call me, don't look for me. I'm not your mom. So that's when I looked at my phone and I said, F you, you never were. And then I just tossed the phone out the window. Like I wrote the window down, tossed it out. And I look at the driver's side at my friend that's driving. And I just said like sort of silently like, F this, opened the door and jumped out. I was already like over it. And when the car was? The car just, the car made a turn. And I, um, I don't know exactly how fast they were going because the speed limit was, the speed that they were going really wasn't in my mind. I already blinked yeah. out after I had threw the phone out the window. I blinked out already. And I just remember just hitting the corner. She drove a little more. And then I just looked at her and I said, F this and then just jumped out. Do you remember any of the moments of that when you, after when you opened the car door? First thing, I just remember opening the car door and then just, just boom, just like boom, sound in the back of my head. I don't know how I ended up getting scars on my front face and all that stuff, but I hit the back of my head for sure. And it reminded me of when I was like three, I fell off of a tricycle on my head. And for some reason, it brought that back, that sound. And I'm like, that hurt. I think it hurt. Like, I was confused about it. I'm like, I think that hurt. Then I'm like, this reminds, this seems familiar. It reminds me of when I was three. Like, that's what I'm thinking the whole entire time, you know? It's crazy, really, that it triggered that memory from so young in such a horrific moment. Mm -hmm. I remember... I was trying to get up and then something's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. So I just kept telling me I wouldn't do that if I were you. And so, cause it was hard to get up and I'm trying to like push myself up and it was hard. And so I used all the strength I had to like finally get up. And then I'm like, okay. But then I look down and see my body on the ground. I'm like thinking I'm still like hallucinating or something. I'm like, wait, that's not really me. I'm just gonna walk home now. So I took like maybe three steps and then that's when like everything in my near-death experience started. Like what could you actually see? Like I could see, it's like, it was kind of like my peripherals were kind of blocked. So it was just like tunnel vision. So I have my goal, like my eyes on walking this way so I can walk home. But then I look down and then see my, I see a body just laying on the ground. I'm like. That's, I didn't think that could be me because I'm right here, like I'm fine. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder who that is. Like, I'm just seeing things. Then take a few steps and then that's when I see nothing, but just different colors in every 
thing was like slow motion. Like you could see like the dog on the chain just barking, but it's slow motion. Like you can see his teeth, everything is just going so slow. And then I just have, I felt this biggest presence I ever felt in my life. And it's like the biggest, how can I explain it? You just know it's the most supreme presence you'll ever feel. There's nothing more powerful than this that you felt. Can you describe what it felt like? Or is it hard to? Power. Power. Like this power, this power being is weird. Like it was like the most macho male presence, but also the most feminine presence at the same time. But it felt like strictly love. At first, it was fear because I was, I just think like, uh oh, like I really did do this, you know? So then I know it was like God's, I call him source because there's so many religions that have different names for God. But I knew him as God because that's what I grew up in, as knowing him as. And so, like, on my chest, you just feel this sharp, this sharp, like, lightning bolts just hitting you as he's talking. But it's not audibly, it's tele telepathic. You hear it and feel it, but it's not out. But he's not saying actual words. So he says, like, let me reintroduce myself. And I'm thinking when he said reintroduce myself, it's like, oh, okay, that's when I knew, okay, this is something real. This is really happening. So all the questions I had were answered before I can even really ask them. Like I was thinking them, but the order I was thinking them, they were answered. So it's like, I am God. Yes, I am real. Yes, angels are real. They're a gift for me. Cause I thought angels were like something from TV. I didn't believe in angels ever. And he's like, wanna meet them? Like that, like wanna meet them? And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> because I didn't believe they were real. So then I'm like, wait, you know what? Okay, real, I get it. I shouldn't be with you right now. I don't deserve to be here. I have a lot of things that are like not perfect with me. Let me go back and, I'll, and then I'll get perfect and then, we'll, then I'll come back to you because that's what church teaches you. Well, my church is anyway. Get perfect and then God will take you. Mm. So then he says like, no, like I want you now. Like, I love you now, how you are now. So I know when he says, like, let me reintroduce myself. I just seen all these words in cap, like in capital letters. From what I took from this was this is him explaining his characteristics to me. So he says, um, one says loving and this, these words are just flying in the air. So you can just read them. So one says like loving. The other one says caring. Then the other one says long suffering. And this one has like f exclamation points, maybe like three, like three exclamation points in front of that one. And then it's just, they're flying through the air, like through the clouds. So after that, he tells me, um, you, he says, okay. I'm like, what am I supposed to do if I go back to earth and tell people like I, I'm seeing this right now. This is happening. They're going to think I'm crazy. Then he just says, go and tell everyone that I love them. Then he says, I will go to the end of the world so that everyone is with me. 
I've never heard a phrase like that before. So I was like, can't really, I don't think a human can make something like that up. That was like a poetic thing to say right there. Um, so next thing you know, he, I like, he goes away. Now I'm in the air. Like I can see everything. I can, I, now there's no like dark colors. There's no, no there's, I see everything that's around here. There's a church, church here, other uh, church like way over there. Mind you, when I jumped out of the car, I was literally in front of like a church. Really? I was just, yeah, like right across from a church. Oh, um, I mean, I hate using the word coincidence, but do you think that's just coincidence or like, isn't it funny that you, it's a bit strange that you jump, you know, there was churches around you when you jumped out of the car. Yeah. Or maybe it is, I suppose there's a lot of churches and places, right? Yeah, just the exact spot this happened was right by the church. Do you think that means anything? I don't. It could be a coincidence, but at the same time, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think there's a deeper meaning behind it. Please don't ask what that is because I, I still don't know. Damn, that was my next question. <laughs> no, I still don't know what that means. Yeah. So everyone is with me. Now I'm in the midair. I'm in the air now. Right. Now I'm like literally everything. everything. So here's the clouds. Here's the sky. And this big old hole. I like to call it a donut hole. Had I walked through there, I probably wouldn't have came back. And in that donut hole, could you see your surroundings as in the actual physical surroundings yeah. on Earth? Yeah. Yes, so I could see. see. The, I looked down. You could look down and see everything on the ground. I'm here in the air, so I'm just looking to my left and my right. Here's clouds. Here's angels. Here's um, and this, and I couldn't see God, but I could see these angels. What did they look like? Huge, like about nine feet tall. There was a bunch of them though around, like swarming, like in a circle. But there's only two that I recognized that for some reason I felt they looked familiar. Which is one on my right, one's on my left. They both are like trying to grab me to, cause I'm freaking out. Cause you're outside of your body, but you're still the same person, you know? So I'm like, you, you still have feelings and stuff. It's so a big old experience. Right. So I'm freak, right. Right. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, I'm like, get me out of here. I'm like, get me out of here. I gotta get out. I thought I was gonna die, like burn because of what I did. And so I just seen, and I know this didn't come from any of them. This came from me. I seen a bunch of Bibles being tossed around and crosses being tossed around. And I know that came from my own thoughts because I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I didn't, you know, I didn't read the King James Version Bible every day. So you're not going to be allowed. So I'm not going to be allowed get, to yeah. go. So it's all those, I can see that, like yeah. that, like it's all those thoughts almost that you were implanted in your brain when you were a kid and that you learn and all that fear come in through you. And that definitely, you can see that was the influence of when you were younger. Yeah. So, but... As soon as those go away, I see all these angels swarming around. And the, the main two that I see, I'm like, okay, so here's the one on my left side. Huge, nine feet, about eight feet, six, nine feet, something like that. Couldn't really see. I tried to look at his face, but he's like kind of like beetle-like face. From what I can see, I couldn't look too deep into him because there was like looking at the sun. There was so much light beaming from his face. And he's a, he's a guy. Um, there was so much like beaming from his face. I had to like turn around like that. It was like too much. 
So this one, and like was stern. He's like, are you sure you want to go? And then I look and I'm already freaked out. I looked at him. And then I turn around and I was like, let me look at this one. You know, I look at the one on my right. This one is bigger, more like he's more human than anything. The other one was more kind of like beetle-ish. This one is like straight, like human with wings. Like seriously, he had um, blue jeans. He had on a red final shirt, sleeves are rolled up to his elbows. He had brown sandals and like brown curly hair. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, and his muscles were just like, like sticking out like that. And I looked way up at him and I'm like, whoa. Cause there's so much light and power. If they were just to do that, it caused like a huge like explosion throughout the city. Could you feel that power then when you? Yes. You had that experience with those two angels. I just, yeah. What I did just, you feel like? Oh, did I have like the power that they felt? No, did you feel the power from them? Yes. Yeah. And it felt like, don't freak with them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they will mess you up. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's funny because I was scared of all that. But in reality, they loved me. Because even the one on my left side, he goes, in the softest voice, you have so much to do for so many people. That's all he said. And I'm like, who, me? Like, so I'm like, okay, they're, I, and I, this is when I realized they're trying to talk me out of crossing that donut hole. So they tell me, look down. I look down. I look down and see my friend way over here separated from me. Here's, here's our over there on their phone. Here's the paramedics and all that. Is it the same friend that was driving that, the car? Right. Yeah. Here's them. Here's their car. And then here's the paramedics over here all around me. And then, like, you see, i just seen all these lights just flashing and stuff like that. Um, and then they said, look down. So I looked down and seen all that. And I'm like, so then they're like, no. And this is when I realized angels are real. They definitely know your personality. I have trust issues, obviously. <laughs> Because, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of reasons. So, of course you do. I think it's understandable. Right. What you've been through as a young child. Right. So I had trust issues and they know this. So they're like, no, look down again. You need to see this. And I'm like, okay. So I look down again. It zooms in like a camera. Just like a camera zooms in. That's what happened. It goes down. I'm like, now I have like a clear view of here's, here's me. I can see the outfit I had on everything, here's the paramedics, here's my friend over, like closer on the phone. I'm like, why is she over there? They asked me, do you wanna stay or do you wanna go? And for some reason, with my right side angel said, you have so much to do for so many people that stuck to me. So when they asked me, do you wanna stay or go? I felt this main urge, as weird as it sounds, me trying to get out of here, here's my chance, like I'm going with you guys. But for some reason, I felt the biggest urge to come back and do so much for so many people, even though I didn't know what he was talking about. So I said, all right, I'll go back, like without a question. Like I didn't think about it. And what happened when you were like, I'll go back? A few days later, I was I in mean, that, Is that the last thing you can remember? Yeah, a few days later, I was in- Right, so um, the next bit you remember is- Is when I was in ICU. The reason why I asked that is because it's very different from what happened to me, but when I, I feel like I made that decision and then when I did, 
that's it. I didn't remember. That was the same for me. I remembered that moment where I said, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not done. As soon as I made that decision, that's the last thing I remember as well. Isn't it funny? Wow. Yeah, that's why wow. I was asking, is that the last, so the last thing you remember? And then the next minute was two days later. You were in hospital, right? In that, ICU. Yeah, woke up, ICU. And I remember the, f I didn't know what the, what happened. I didn't know where I was. I just know I woke up and I'm like, and I look around and here's the nurses. And I just hear them saying, oh my God, he's up. Oh my God, he woke up. He woke up. We thought you were gone. Oh, you're a miracle. You're such a miracle and stuff like that. How did that make you feel in that moment? I just still wasn't picking up what they were saying because they're like, oh, you're, you've been here for days. And I was like, then they're like, you hemorrhaged out of, I forgot how many bags they said. I didn't even know what hemorrhage, what a hemorrhage was, I, but they said I did a lot of it. Yeah, so you need a blood transfusion. I guess so. They said, yeah. all they know is they said they went through a lot of bags. Yeah, blood, yeah. So I was like, bags? I'm like, huh. Still not really picking up what they're saying. So I look at the table and I'm like, and this is literally the first thing I said. I'm like, is this jello for me? And they're like, yeah, this is all yours. I'm like, so I can eat this jello? They're like, yeah, it's all yours. Go ahead. And I was like, no one's gonna like take it, right? They're like, no. I'm like, wow. I'm like, I get to have jello? Like, that was the biggest. Take out of all this, I'm in the, I see, I see you almost dead. The experience of a lifetime, and I'm worried about Jello. <laughs> I'm not laughing, but I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love I laugh that. at it because I'm like, Jello. Do you know what the first thing I said what? when I woke up is I was in a coma for two weeks, and oh. the first thing I said was, um, did I miss the Olympics? <laughs> Isn't, it <weird? laughs> wow. Isn't it funny, the things that you... You've just been through this horrific trauma, and then angels on Jello, and I'm going on about the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> Did you eat your Jello? Most important question. Yeah. Was it good? I couldn't taste. I couldn't taste anything for months after that. Really? Couldn't smell anything for months. I honestly think it still affected my taste. Now it changed my whole entire life. My spirit. My my mind, every single thing is different, really, because of that experience. I, like, I view everything in life different because of that. And I'm glad for that. Um, I guess you could say I'm happy that it happened, but it just sucks that, that it did happen. Mm. That, that there was so much, like, strife in my life that that it had to happen. But I'd rather be someone who speaks about it to prevent other people from doing it. So that's another plus. I think there's honestly more pluses from this event, but it's a con. I don't want people thinking that, okay, let me just kill myself so that way I can have an experience like his. Yeah. You know, like it's definitely, that's the worst like fear of what happened too. Cause I speak about it and I don't want anybody getting that idea. You don't say anything, you just push and push against me, trying to hurt me. It's no match for my mum's sorrow. The lonely child stood at my nan and granddad's gates, longing for love, longing to be loved. I am your love, mum. You are loved by me. 
Life-ending scenes, often positively portrayed in literature or media as rays of light, opening doors or stairways, and guardian angels must have originated somewhere. So the variety of experiences that we've heard from Chris all ring true to accepted belief. Even the volatile black mass that I fought in my NDE holds parallels with the fire and the fury of a dark, deathly passage into what we might believe to be an afterlife. But for our next voice, using the pseudonym Miss Wondersmith, a very different characteristic greeted her. So I chose the name Miss Wondersmith because I work in a variety of different media. And the thing that kind of ties them all together in my mind is that everything I do is with the intent to harness or share or give wonder to someone else. I work in ceramics. I'm a food designer, um, general like content creator, uh, and do projects in pretty much everything I can get my hands on. But if I tell people I'm a ceramicist, there are certain assumptions that come along with that. Or if I tell people I'm a glass blower, there are really limiting assumptions that come along with that. Whereas if I say I'm a wondersmith, it usually um, gets reactions of curiosity and allows me to explain more of my motivation and kind of the scale and um, depth to my work. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it because I think we can be so limiting of people. We define people by titles or, or what they do and actually probably easy for us to then define in our own brains where actually people can do more than one thing and and don't need to be defined by it. So you've mentioned your motivations. What What is your motivation behind the work that you do and your creations? Well, um, so I've struggled with pretty severe chronic illness since I was 17 and have had some pretty dark patches. And it was actually my near-death experience that really catalyzed my sense of purpose. Um, and I had to work very hard to find feelings of hope or wonder in those dark places during those periods of time that I didn't know that I was going to survive. I love being able to point out how magical and amazing this world is and share that with other people. Because that's quite hard to do, I think, to find wonder in darkness in those mo- I mean, myself, I I can, but, but I also sometimes find it really hard. Yeah, and it's not something I can always do. But um, I remember, for example, there was a a bush outside my window when I was stuck in bed in just excruciating pain. And it was late summer, early fall. And every day I just studied the leaf to see how much it had changed. And that one little thing made me feel connected to the world again. And like time is moving on. Hopefully this will pass. You said from about the age of 17, you um, got a chronic illness. And I know that's something that you still work through on a day-to-day basis now. But if I could take you back to that moment, was that what led to your near-death experience when you were younger? So in the spring 2013, 
I had the worst flare-up I've ever experienced. I have a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Um, and then a cup, I have a, a tick-borne illness similar to Lyme disease. My worst symptom during my flare-ups is really severe gastroparesis, which basically means um, a paralyzed digestive system. Um, so I stopped being able to eat uh, and f for like months, I mean, for, for the whole summer, I was unable to eat. I struggled even to drink water. I was, you know, extremely malnourished and um, dehydrated constantly. I would just kind of be in pain until I passed out and then wake up like two hours later to the pain. I felt like my whole entire existence was pain and there was no no escape from it. There was no, like even sleep wasn't really an escape because it didn't last very long and it was full of nightmares. Um, and at that point I hadn't been diagnosed so we were still baffled as to what was going on with me. I was in really rough shape. I mean, I was, skin and bones and anxiety and really not much else. It was, it was really terrifying to feel like I was dying and to not have any control over it, not even know why it was happening. At the worst of it, I had a night where I was just like barely even breathing because to breathe deeply would have been excruciating. Like it kind of just felt like my body was like gripped in claws or something and any movement was, was horrible. I remember just feeling like I don't want to exist. I wasn't necessarily suicidal. It was more of just like, I just want to have a break from existence. Like I just want to not feel anything. And I felt that a lot, of, a lot during that period of time. Like I just needed a break. And that night I had this sort of hallucination, maybe this vision. Um, and it was this, this tunnel that had waves of color swirling in kind of a corkscrew fashion and then like sparkles of color on top of that also swirling and there were colors there that I've never seen in the real world before like they only existed in my mind like there are no words to describe them because they were just so different um and the tunnel, you know, at the end of it was just pure light. And I started to move down the tunnel. And the further down I went, the less pain I felt. It's like I was just kind of almost like shedding a jacket or like leaving it 
behind me and I felt light and just this huge feeling of peace. I think I knew in that moment that that this was death. And when I was about halfway down the tunnel, it's like something in me woke up and screamed inside my head, I'm not finished here yet. And I was suddenly like, like sprung back into my body and hit with just tremendous pain back into that like excruciating pain. And I remember being angry that that part of me had kept me from the peace that I was craving. I had several more months of really difficult recovery and continue to struggle a lot with my health. I'm so glad that whatever part of me decided to hold on did because I've had a really rich existence since then despite the periods of pain and suffering that come with being chronically ill. That experience has definitely affected me really deeply. It's something that I think kind of ties into my whole worldview. It's not something that is a distant memory. It's something that I'll carry with me probably until I do die. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. And I can see just even, you know, where I can see you and I can see where you've got it looks like a plaster mm-hmm. where you can see the being fed through a line. And you said about it's something you'll carry with you until death. And I think even when I say those words, I'm also careful because I think we don't like to talk about that, I think generally in society. Has it made you feel anything different towards death? Is it something you're scared of or feel more at peace with? I would say that I'm much less afraid of death than I was before this experience, but I'm still afraid of dying before I'm ready to. I've actually had a couple other near-death experiences from my illness. This was the one that I went the furthest with, if that makes sense. Like There were other times when I was really not doing well for various reasons or hospitalized. And I would see the tunnel start to form and immediately be like, no. I believe that that night was a choice. That if I hadn't said I wasn't ready to go, I genuinely believe I would have died that night. And that makes me feel like I have a little more control over my illness than than I felt like I did before. And it also makes me feel like death itself will be peaceful um, whenever it happens, hopefully not for a long time. But that that message of I'm not finished here yet is something that I think about very often. I can relate to that 
that particular moment. And it, and at one point, I just had had enough, and I just wanted, I just wanted a bit like you said, a break and and the peace. And I felt like I couldn't fight anymore. I feel in that moment that I had a choice as well, and that if I'd have just said no, I'm done, I wouldn't be here anymore. It makes me think a lot about my own life, but then it makes me think about other people and how because I felt bad saying that because then then does that mean when people have lost loved ones that they didn't want to stay I just wondered what your thoughts were well I think like I said I think sometimes there's a choice and sometimes maybe there isn't yeah you know I mean especially in like accidents or or like quick deaths and I I also think that you know, I was in the most pain I could imagine, but everybody experiences pain very differently. And, you know, there are instances of suicide due to pain, that yeah. there's just too much pain to live with. And so, you know, if someone is in so much pain that when they're offered that door, they take it, I don't think it's a sign of of weakness or of not wanting to stay for their loved ones. I think it's something to feel a lot of compassion about. That is not a choice made out of anything but desperation for peace. Mm. And if we're all offered a choice, which I, I don't believe we are. But if we were all offered a choice, I don't think it would be any of my business to speculate on why someone did or didn't yeah. stay. Yeah, I think that's a really, really lovely way to put it because it's not a reflection of of maybe other people. It's a reflection of what they were going through in that moment. Two contrasting but very emotive experiences. We'll explore more on Died and Survived in episode six, as it becomes very evident that waking from an NDE is not the end of the experience. It is simply the trigger to embrace or endure the newer version of yourself. Live 2.0. For better, for worse, learning to live again is most definitely in my and other NDEs the best part of the journey and we can share the reasons why in the next episode go and give it a listen now this is next on died and survived i have kind of a weird view on on death and spirituality which is like very happily sitting on the fence <laughs> um i i'm open to multiple possibilities and I'm content in not settling on an answer. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley, with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.